You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Think of a movie. By instinct, the first movie that comes to your mind is probably one of your favorite movies, one that is meaningful to you in some way. Maybe you connected with the characters. Much more relatable to me that a chick could survive and have the cat come with her. Maybe the story enthralled you. It is a beautiful, moving, haunting movie. Or just maybe it made an emotional connection at just the right point in your life. Just an all-around nice movie. But, and this is the part that's hard to believe, there are people out there who have not seen this movie. I'm Rafe Telsch, and my podcast, Have Not Seen This, aims to fix that. Each episode, I talk with a guest who handpicks a movie for us to discuss. A movie that they find astonishing that people may not have seen. Why haven't people seen this? We talk about the movie. Laura Dannon being able to compel Willow to be the best version of himself. We talk about life. And I lived with roommates and we did hard drugs. So join me on Have Not Seen This. Episodes drop every Wednesday, wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Fresh Hell. I'm Annie. And I'm Johanna, and you just heard the promo for Have Not Seen This. So this is one of the very few not-true-crime-related podcasts that we suggest to you. So this one is a movie podcast, and the host, Rafe, he talks about great films with his guests. I had the pleasure to chat with him about one of my favorite movies, which is Clockwork Orange, because I think I mentioned it several times, I'm a huge Stanley Kubrick fan. So if you <laughs> love movies, please, please go and check him out, and he has an amazing voice. Like, seriously. Yeah, it was it was an amazing episode. You were so good. You are a vault of Kubrick <laughs> knowledge. Yeah, Rafe is great. It's the only movie podcast I listen to now. I'm a fan. So yeah, definitely second that recommendation. What else is new? What do we have happening? Uh, well, congratulations to Dean who won a t-shirt in our Facebook group for our one year anniversary. Yes. Congratulations, Dean. That is on its way to you. Dean, if your girlfriend also listens, then I am glad to hear the heating pad is helping. As Johanna said, yeah, thanks to everyone who entered the contest. It was really interesting, wasn't it? To see what everyone chose as their favorite episode. I was surprised, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, some we thought we'd see because of reviews you've left saying, you know, this is my favorite episode or what have you, but some were a really nice surprise. So thanks again to everyone who entered. What else is happening? Oh, we are having issues with our YouTube channel, aren't we? There's been some kind of issue with the comments. Yeah, people have left some lovely comments on YouTube and they keep disappearing. So we can see that somebody left a comment and we can read it, but... It just doesn't show on the episode. And I just want you guys out there, or we want you guys out there to know that we're not deleting them and we're not ignoring you. If we can't answer, it's because the comment doesn't show up for us anymore. I don't know what's happening there. We're going to try to fix it, but yeah, we're sorry. Yeah, it's really bizarre. I'm not exactly... We can't figure it out, so we think it's something going on with YouTube. If I sound somehow different today, or the, the sound of my microphone is somehow different today, I'm at my mom's. I'm actually right now sitting at my brother's desk in his room occupying his room for an hour to record this episode. I'm in exile because it's a little bit nicer at the moment in the countryside than in the big city in Austria. So it's all I have to say for now. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Okay, so it's not gonna stop us from recording. What do you have for us today, Annie? Well, I know we have a lot of listeners in Australia, so good day. 
Not to brag, but I used to be a hostess at an Outback Steakhouse, so I'm kind of an expert on Australian expressions. <laughs> I can only tell you about all the times Austria and Australia gets confused. We even sell t-shirts in Austria that say no kangaroos in Austria. <laughs> I can imagine. My late husband was English, and he didn't sound remotely Australian. He sounded like he was from England, but people used to always ask if he was Australian and it would really frustrate him. But I know that you have actually been to Australia many times, I think. So please tell me a little bit about your favorite things in Australia. Well, I went to Australia almost monthly, I'd say for pretty much four or four and a half years when I was a flight attendant, because <sighs> I used to go either Singapore, uh, Melbourne or Kuala Lumpur, Sydney. So I uh, only ever went to Sydney and Melbourne. I can't tell you a whole lot about Melbourne because honestly, I mostly slept for the two days there because we always went partying for three days straight in Singapore because it's amazing to go <laughs> partying there. But Sydney, I love the beaches, the people, the aquarium in Sydney is amazing. I especially loved Manly Beach, but I only ever went into the water like up to my knees because I was always a bit scared of shark attacks. <laughs> it's just that everything in Australia seems to be out to kill you. I know, and now we know they can still get you even if you're only up to your knees. Exactly. I was right. It's the worst. <laughs> yeah. But what I will always remember so our hotel in sydney was the marriott right across the street from hyde park i think it's not a marriott nowadays anymore but it used to be a marriott and when you walked through the hyde park during night then you could see the fruit beds circling the huge trees it was amazing oh and right around the corner from our hotel was oxford street which is the gate district in sydney and we had so many fun nights there Oh, nice. Yeah, you had me at fruit bats. I love bats so much. I'm just afraid of the spiders. I'm not <laughs> going to say anything. I know. I'm not. I'm not even going to accept that if we finally make it there, and I know we will, it's been on my dream bucket list for such a long time, but business class is so expensive. And I know some people will understand what I'm talking about when I say that I'm afraid that flying that long without being able to kind of get flat or, you know, get my spine into a certain angle, then I'd end up the first like week of my vacation, I'd end up in bed. Uh, I just need to save my pennies, but we'll get there one day. And when I do, I'm sleeping with pantyhose over my head like they did on that show with, um, oh, it was Cloris Leachman and Martha Plimpton of Raising Hope. Have you seen that? We love that show. We were really sad when it was over. It was a really fun show. It was show. so good. <laughs> yeah. So that's something we could recommend from both of us. Yeah. I'm not going to spoil anything if you haven't seen it, but yeah, so good. But I love how she sleeps with the pantyhose over her head in that. The best animals are in Australia, but also the, the bitiest. All right. So the other thing I learned whilst reading about Australia, it just, it completely blew my mind. It was one of these, how did I not know this? And so I have to tell you all about it. Of course you do. <laughs> you know how I am. If I get excited by a fact, then I have to tell all of you about it too. Okay. So I have a thing where... When a song sounds a little bit like another song, that other song is then the only thing I can think about, right? Happens all the time. That Sam Smith song, Stay With Me, sounds like Tom Petty's Won't Back Down. You know, that kind of thing. I always hear it. It's super common, right? Yes, I always have that with uh, the intro of Under Pressure and Ice Ice Baby. Like, Ice Ice Baby start, I always think it's Under Pressure and the other way around. I know, I do too. And it's really funny because I enjoy both of those songs. It just depends on the right setting. 
you know? And sometimes you're in a real ice ice baby kind of mood, but it's under pressure and vice versa. They're so similar. And then there are some, though, that like nobody believes. I think I'm the only one that can hear it. Like, which came first, the theme song to the Brady Bunch or the chorus of the hymn, Here I Am, Lord? Because those sound the same to me. And I, I feel... Like, I'm the only one that hears that. Anyhow, I never realized there was a really famous one in a song that I love. So the first crime today is going to be a little case of copyright infringement. Ooh, dramatic. (laughs) That's a first for us. (laughs) Yeah, we're bringing you all the crime. All right. So you know the Australian song. Do you know the song Kookaburra? The kookaburra sits in the old gum tree, eating all the gumdrops he can see. You know that one? Yeah. Okay. I know that's not the actual verse of the song, but I legitimately thought as a small child that Australia had trees with gumdrops just hanging from them. And I thought that (laughs) the dots candy, you know, dots, it's like they come in a box at the movie theater. Mm -hmm. I thought dots were the all natural gumdrops. (laughs) And that the ones with sugar on them were like the candied up version of the all natural gumdrops that came from the gum tree in Australia. Yeah, in my defense, I was like five or six. And to this day, I still really like gumdrops. I wish you could see my face right now. (laughs) Oh, what? Because it's stupid for a five-year-old to think that if a kookaburra is a real thing and a gum tree is a real thing, that the weird part of the story are the gumdrops? No, it's just like you always have this amazing little dive into the most bizarre little things. (laughs) I never know where I get with you. (laughs) Well, I'm about to... (laughs) I'm about to tell you all about the kookaburra now. Alright, so try to contain your excitement. (laughs) Okay. So a kookaburra is a terrestrial bird that's native to Australia, and it's a kind of kingfisher. In New England, the loon is the bird most known for its laugh. In Australia, it's the kookaburra. And can I just say that the two of these combined could be terrifying, like on a soundtrack. Do you know the call of the loon? I don't, I'm not sure. Well, it's a very much a like a spooky, long, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. drawn-out call. So if you're ever near water and you're wondering what's making that sound of a lake ghost, you've got yourself a loon. I'm not going to – I'm going to spare you my bird impressions. Uh, no, please do the bird impression. Like, <laughs> you have to. You started it, you have to finish it. I'm sorry. Okay, so the loon – the loon goes – I should have – I should have – okay. The loon goes kind of like, oh. And then it, like, echoes across the lake. And then it's got a creepy cackle that I'm not going to do, but, like, a fast cackle, like a dolphin on meth. (laughs) And that's that's where the saying, crazy like a loon, comes from. And my dad used to have a record called Voices of the Loon, Mm -hmm. and all it was was just loon calls. And I used to steal that record to fall asleep to at night. That actually explains a lot. Like, a lot. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to do a kookaburra impersonation because I'm just not. But the kookaburra sounds like, it sounds like the jungle. Yeah, I think every movie that's set in a jungle somewhere, you're going to hear the kookaburra. Like all the Disney rides, I think, have the kookaburra sound effects. Yeah, right. It doesn't matter where you are in the plot. If you're in Africa, South America, if it's a jungle, there's a kookaburra. (sighs) I don't know 
We'll have to see if we can legally maybe play it for people, if we can play a bird call or I'll link to them. I think we can. We can safely play a bird sound. All right. impressive, right? Yeah, may I also add that the German name for the kookaburra is Lachender Hans, which translates to Laughing John. Oh, that's so strange to me. They wouldn't call it a kookaburra. So were the words to your kookaburra song different too? Well, we don't have that song in a German version. Okay. I'm also wondering how often you hear the kookaburra. So hopefully our Aussie friends will tell us if hearing that call is super common or really, really rare. But yeah, maybe some of our Aussie uh, listeners, Hellions, can tell us. I just want to know how often you actually hear a kookaburra in Australia. Is it as common as like me hearing crows outside? Or is it more rare? Like I've only seen a kingfisher once on a canal in England, and it was very exciting. All right, back to the song and the lawsuit. I don't know how I missed this at the time. And again, I'm sure our Aussie Hellions and Men at Work fans know this, but I did not. So the Kookaburra song itself was written by Marion Sinclair. She was a teacher who enjoyed writing poems and songs. And in 1932, she was at church when she became inspired and rushed home afterward to write down the words to Kookaburra. Two years later, in 1934, she entered the song into a competition that was run by the Girl Guides Association of Victoria. Now, according to Wikipedia, quote, the song was performed for the first time in 1934 at the annual Jamboree in Frankston, Victoria, at which the Baden Powells, founders of the Scouting and Guiding Movements, were present, end quote. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the best way I can sum up this song is that it was kind of known worldwide. It was published in songbooks for Girl Guides or Girl Scouts and whatnot, and it was just sort of a beloved Australian children's song that, you know, went around the world. I don't know. I was a Girl Scout for years, and we never sang that. We only sang stuff like, Vom Barretta schwank die Feder. What does that mean? <laughs> you really want to know? We really need to go yeah, there. do. It's more or less the feather is swaying on the beret. Oh, well, that's all right. Listen, I like a jaunty hat with a feather, so I don't, <laughs> no complaints from me. I think if my mom taught me the kookaburra song, not the Girl Scouts, I didn't have the best experience with Girl Scouts, but that's, that's a story for a whole other time. So I always thought that the flute riff in Men at Work's song Down Under sounded familiar, but never once did I place it in its kookaburra. Did you know? I had absolutely no idea. <laughs> I feel like you're like, I didn't know, nor do I care. <laughs> I just had no idea. I don't know. But apparently I wasn't alone in not realizing it because there was a game show on ABC in Australia. And one of the questions asked, and I think this was 2007 when this episode premiered, but the question 
pointed out the fact that Kookaburra was used in the song Down Under. And it wasn't until that game show aired that Larrikin Music, who owned the rights to the song Kookaburra and had since a couple of years after Marion died in 1988, that's when they realized that the song was similar themselves, even though it had been on the air at the top of the charts for seven years before Marion died, and she never objected to it. So over 20 years after Down Under became a well-deserved smash hit, all of a sudden men at work are getting sued for copyright infringement, and Larrikin wanted 60% of their royalties. 60%. So, ultimately, they did prove that it was close enough to Kookaburra to earn royalties, but I'm glad that they only got 5% for any royalties earned after 2002. I think that's, that's fair enough. That's good. I agree. I just love Down Under. Who doesn't? It's the best song, right? What do you like more, Down Under or Africa? I was just going to say, are you going to make me choose? I love them both equally. Did you add them to the Fresh Hell playlist? I have. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> yes. You can find the Fresh Hell playlist. Yes. Anyhow, I think it was really devastating for Greg Ham, who wrote and performed the flute riff. And I would say on the whole was certainly inspired, deeply inspired by Kookaburra, but it's not the whole song. It's not even the whole flute riff. It's sad to think that anybody would have ever thought he deliberately copied it maliciously, you know, which I definitely don't think he did. I don't know why I have kind of big feelings about this, but I do, and I could be wrong. Colin Hay of Men at Work has been reported as saying that he feels that the stress uh, that this issue caused contributed both to Greg Ham's death and to that of his father. Sidebar to the sidebar, Colin Hay also wrote a song called I Just Don't Think I'll Ever Get Over You, which is one I listen to a lot when I'm grieving. It's a good grief song. I think he wrote it when he was getting sober. I think it's a song that he wrote to alcohol, which I thought was interesting, but I added it to the Fresh Hell playlist as well. So that and Down Under have, I added both of them before we even sat down to record. So that's a little bit of um, Australian music history for your next pub quiz. <laughs> uh, well, it's definitely something I didn't know. Thank you, Annie. Now yeah. I will never unhear it. It makes me love it more. I don't know. Maybe you have destroyed Down Under now for me. No, I think you'll love it even <laughs> no. more like I do. Because it's multi-layered and nuanced in a way I hadn't truly appreciated. <laughs> I think nobody can destroy Down Under for me. No. But now, let's pause before we get into the murder case we're going to focus on today, or Annie's gonna tell us about today. Let's take a quick break to tell you about the sponsor of today's show, Elemis. I was so excited, Johanna, when you told me that Elemis was today's sponsor, because when we had a bathtub, their milk bath was the best thing for my very dry, sensitive skin. I also love their muscle ease for my fibromyalgia flares, and they honestly, they make the best, most fragrant body oils. They're a luxury skincare brand that's based in the UK, and some of my absolute favorite spas use them. I really also love their shampoo and conditioner, too. And they're cruelty-free, which is very important to Annie and me. And there is one product in particular that not only has cult status globally, it also won a bunch of awards and it is always given a shout-out by beauty editors for its amazing anti-aging properties. It's called Pro Collagen Marine Cream. I can't wait to try it. So the secret to this super cream is seaweeds and lots of them. And men, don't forget, you need to wash your face, moisturize, and wear sunscreen too. Your skin is important. Put the lotion on it already. <laughs> Elemis is offering a deal to our Hellions. Please visit 
www.elemis, that's E-L-E-M-I-S dot com slash U-S slash Fresh Hell to sign up and claim a sample of their best-selling pro-collagen marine cream for just $10. That includes shipping. This is worth $45. But make sure you hurry. It's first come, first serve, and I'm ordering mine as soon as we finish recording. This is exciting. What do you have for us today? Are there any warnings about today's case? Today I've got another family annihilator case. We're going to talk about the murder of children. And this time I'm talking about a case I've never heard covered before. Probably because there's not a ton of information out there on this case. But this man is absolutely diabolical. So this is the murder of the Crawford family. I never heard about this, so I'm all ears. Okay. A lot of what I learned about this case came from Greg Fogarty. He's an author who grew up in the same neighborhood as the Crawford family house, and he wrote a book about the case called Almost Perfect, which I uh, do recommend and will link to. He was featured on an episode of an Australia, the Australian version of the show Sensing Evil. So I used that for quite a lot of my information on this episode, actually. And I know it sounds very odd for me to only have a couple of sources, and the main one is a show about psychics solving murder. But this show had both the author, Greg Fogarty, as well as detectives who worked the case and people who worked with the murderer at the time. So it was actually one of the better sources I found. They're just, you know, there aren't that many, and it's still an open case. So... Therese or Teresa, I've seen it both ways. I believe, I really thought her name was Therese until I saw her grave, which says Teresa. So it's either Therese or Teresa. McManus, she left a loving family and moved from Ipswich down to Melbourne when she was 21 years old, and she got a job as a nursing aide. She was described by her friends as fun-loving, vivacious, she loved to go out, she loved to go dancing, and it was apparently at one of these dances where she met a soft-spoken Irishman by the name of Elmer Kyle Crawford. They had a whirlwind romance, and she quickly found herself pregnant and engaged to be married. So, Elmer Crawford was born in Canada to a woman from Derry in 1929. She was not married, and she just couldn't cope with the situation of being an unwed mother. So, she sent him back to Ireland to be brought up by his grandparents in Derry. So, he lived in Ireland until he emigrated in his 20s to Australia, and that happened in 1950. So by his 20s, he'd been born in Canada, grown up in Ireland, and then moved to Australia. It's really hard to find any kind of information on his early life. One of the men that used to work with him did say that he had a very strong Irish brogue and that he was uh, quite quiet when he did speak. I love an accent, though, don't you? Are you seriously asking the woman with a heavy accent if she loves an accent? <laughs> I'd say it depends on the accent. I love your accent. Oh, that's fair. I rarely think American accents are sexy. Like, I don't think... I think Americans, we love... Like, I think you have a sexy accent. I think most Americans find any kind of accent pretty sexy. But I don't think the rest of the world thinks American accents are sexy. Does that make I sense? I love a Texan accent. I don't know why. I think it's charming. Oh, yes. Because I think the Texan accent is what we really 
think of over here when we think of American accent? Well, and I will tell you, one of the things that I have noticed in terms of having just being fortunate enough to have friends and family that sort of live all over the world. And, you know, you end up doing that thing sometimes where you try to put on each other's accent. And I have found universally that people who are not American, when they try to do an American accent, they all sound like John Wayne. It's like, <laughs> it's like the only voice they can do. And I, it's even people who don't, you know, they don't know anyone from Texas or the South. They don't even watch John Wayne movies. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, howdy, partner. It's like they very, it's just, I it's don't true, know why. It just yeah. makes me, it really is. It's so funny to me. And I don't know why, but I love it. All right. So by 1957, the couple buys a house in Glenroy, which is a suburb of Melbourne. Later that year, their first child, Catherine Jane Crawford, was born. Four years later, they welcome a son, James William. And two years after that, their youngest, Karen Jean, is born. So Elmer is not qualified as an electrician, but he's very handy. And he had a job as a telephone mechanic for the Victoria Racing Club at Flemington, and he'd worked there for 14 years. None of his co-workers knew him very well. He never spoke of his life in Ireland. He never talked about his family. He was very quiet and intensely private, but he apparently was known to have a really awful temper. According to the you know, information related on one of the programs. There was one time where something went wrong with a car that he had just had fixed, and he got so angry that he took a tire iron and hit every panel of his car with it, like in a rage, because the fixed thing broke again. So, hmm, red flags. He was also dealing from his job, and the main thing he stole regularly was copper wire. He was a telephone lineman, so I think he stole a lot of copper wire, which was worth a lot of money. But you name it, he stole it. Uh, toilet paper, grass seed, 20 pence coins from parking, fees, that kind of stuff. You name it. If he could, you know, use it or sell it, he stole it. Well... I mean, we know now that toilet paper is actually very valuable. Ugh, I do not understand the hoarding of toilet paper. This is not a cholera outbreak, people. But Elmer, he was pretty well set up financially. He had a lot of money in the bank. He owned his own house. He had 3000 in the bank. So by today's standards, he basically had, the way they explained it was, he basically had a year's salary saved. So whatever your annual salary is, imagine that you had that amount saved up in the bank. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Most people don't have a year's salary in the bank. So yeah, the house was paid for as was the car. And he had a little like motor scooter. And he also owned three plots of land in Queensland. So he had some money. So sometime that summer around June of 1970, Elmer's neighbors noticed he'd started like a real cleaning frenzy. He was burning a lot of um, rubbish in the backyard, but the fires were so large, people would think the house was on fire because there was so much smoke and they'd then see, oh no, he's just burning rubbish, which I guess was a thing in the 70s. And then he'd also make several trips to the tip or the dump or Uh, I'm not sure what it's called where you live around the world, but the landfill, the where you bring the garbage. And he took seats out of the back of his car um, so that he could just pack stuff into the car and take it to throw away. Bit of a cleaning frenzy that summer, but nothing, nothing that you would think was necessarily suspicious, right? To be fair, I need to do a few runs to the tip and have a big tag sale because it's out of hand here. All right. So on July 1st, 1970, it was a fairly cold night 
everything you read says about how it's a, a cold night because, of course, it's winter in Australia. And so I looked it up. Cold in Melbourne is around 40 Fahrenheit, which would be around 4.4 Celsius. That seems to be the coldest it gets. So I've told Paul now I think I could live there. That climate seems nice. Not, not too hot, not too cold. Around 7 or 7.30 p.m., the three Crawford kids, they're in bed. Catherine is 12, James is 8, and Karen is 6. So Adrian Donahue, he led the investigation, the police investigation at the time. He's in the Sensing Evil episode, and he said it was the worst case of his career, which I absolutely believe. He believes that Elmer killed his wife first because 35-year-old Therese was the only one who might have been able to stop him from murdering their children. He goes on to explain what authorities now believe happened based on what they found at the scene. So Elmer had made these devices that were wires, and then at one end, attached to the wires, were alligator clips, and then those would feed into a really long cord, which ended with a plug. Elmer first hit his wife over the head to knock her out, but not to kill her or leave too much damage, and they believe he did this with a length of pipe wrapped in garden hose. He then attached alligator clips to her earlobes, plugged in the cord, and turned on the switch for the power. He had also taken the time before doing this to change out all the fuses in the fuse box of the house so that when he electrocuted his family, he wouldn't blow a fuse. He made sure they'd all be electrocuted to death. He then took a hammer to the head of each of his children and then electrocuted them as well, except for Karen, the youngest. She had no electrocution burns on her body. I think they believe that with the others, they were hit on the head and then electrocuted to be sure they were dead. I think that he was sure she was dead after the first blow of the hammer. So Elmer then loaded the bodies of his wife and three children into the back of the car, a car he'd taken the time to remove the back seat from earlier during those trash runs. He had wrapped their bodies up in blankets and then covered them with the tarps. He then got in the car with his dead family and drove down to Port Campbell, which is about 250 kilometers or 155 miles from Glenroy. He arrives at, hopefully I'm going to pronounce this correctly, so I would have said Loch Ard Gorge, but I've also, I heard it pronounced by some people seem to say Loch Eid Gorge, but it's a gorge. And it's like a, if you imagine a cove, so imagine it's also kind of a blowhole where the ocean meets the coast. So it's kind of a horseshoe shape. Do you know what I mean? Around the edge of the coast and the water kind of goes into this small space and the waves go up. Yeah. So he gets there and his plan is to push the car with his dead family inside over the edge. But when he tries to do this, he can't get the car gets stuck. And there's actually a culvert, like a little ditch that went around the gorge to help drain rainwater and probably divert it back into the sea. And he couldn't get the car over it. So listen, this is kind of great because you just wish every misery on this motherfucker. So he had to get out of the car in the pouring rain and 40 degree weather and find enough rocks and things so that he was able to fill in part of the trench and build sort of a little bridge that the car could then drive over to make it off the edge of the cliff. 
Then he took a tube that connected the exhaust pipe and ran it over the roof rack and onto the into the driver's side of the car window to make it look like, presumably to cover all his bases and make it look like a suicide. He weighted down the gas pedal with a hammer and a shoe and he sent the car over the edge of the cliff into the water below. So there are a few theories about how he got home. He may have taken his little motor scooter with him and ridden that home, which would have taken like three to four hours, or he might have hitchhiked or caught a bus. Nobody knows for sure. On July 2nd, the next day, at 1.30 in the afternoon, two tourists that were near the entrance to this blowhole saw the car sitting on a ledge. It was a badly damaged white 1956 Holden sedan, and the right-hand side of the car was hanging off the edge, about to go into the water at any moment. So they call police, who call in a cliff rescue squad, and one of the members of this group is a man by the name of George Cummings, and he's on the Sensing Evil show too, so you see why Sensing Evil, awesome source for this one. They've also got a bunch of old video footage from the time, and George is this ruggedly handsome, but in an approachable way, kind of, I don't know, older Australian man with a nice accent and kind eyes, and he explains that the hose from the exhaust made them worry and think that this was a suicide, and that there was just a ton of crap in the car. They found a loaded gun, a rifle, there were gas cans, but just no real signs of any people until they're finally able to examine the car. George Cumming and Cecil, I don't know if it's Cecil or Cecil, Burgeon, were lowered down and George said, quote, we lifted up the tarpaulin and Cess Burgeon said, I can see some feet. And as the tarpaulin was lifted further, I saw three sets of feet, end quote. I'm so quiet because that's horrible. That's fucking horrible. Like, seriously, I never heard about this. I'm like, I know. When I came across this, I'd never heard of it. And I just thought I need to tell this story, even though it's, yeah. Okay. So meanwhile, while they're trying to work out getting the car out of this ravine, because it really was like the right hand side of the car, there was a ledge underneath. And then the two wheels were so like on the edge of one wrong wave would have they would have lost the car and they would have lost everything. So in the meantime, they run the plates and they see it's registered to Elmer. And so around six o'clock, they go to the house, but there's no answer. And people trying to get the car up and out, they end up having to pause and wait till the next day because it's too dangerous to attempt in the dark. They're worried a big enough wave would just, you know, knock it into the ocean and that would have been that. So once the feet were found and the blood was found in the car and everything, police went back to the house though at 10 o'clock that night and they found an open window in the back of the house that they were able to get into. And that is when the police get inside and they find blood stains. The carpet is wet. There is foaming stain remover on carpets and upholstery that's still foaming. It wasn't long that he had been there. There were the remnants of what looked like breakfast for one in the kitchen. It just, it looked really ominous. So at first light the next morning, the three men from the cliff rescue squad anchor the car and finally get it to a place where they could safely examine it. And they did have the bodies of Therese and the three children in the back of the car. So that, combined with what they found at the house, they definitely believed that Elmer had murdered his family. But there was some question as to what exactly had happened to Elmer. The police really did think, you know, with absolute certainty, he murdered them and escaped, but they had to try to prove that he wasn't in the car, in the driver's seat of the car when it went over the cliff, and that his body hadn't been washed out to sea, right? Because yeah, I guess it's possible. So the police did 
reenactments. They got the same 1956 Holden sedan. They got dummies to put in the car, including one for Elmer. They set the car up, and they even put a bunch of stuff they found in the Crawford's car in the car they used for this experiment. And they sent it over the edge of the cliff. And there's footage of this that you can see in that show I watched. And so when it goes over the edge, it landed the same way Elmer's car had, first going like front end forward, and then Elmer's car landed right side up, but the test car uh, reenacting it landed upside down. But in both cases, the important thing was that the front end had compacted like a crushed soda can. And so in the reenactment, the dummy in the front seat was absolutely crushed into place by the front end of the car. And that's how they figured that it was absolutely impossible for Elmer to have been driving and his body to have fallen out of the car and been washed out to sea. And then this belief was backed up by eyewitness reports by girls who had so the morning after the murder their daughter's best friend rang the doorbell to see if she would walk to school with her and elmer answered the door and said that she was home sick with the flu and then later that day they had seen other people had seen him standing in his driveway on the same afternoon the car was found so they were able to convince the coroner and a warrant was issued for the arrest of elmer crawford Okay, but why do we have any idea what the motive was? Well, we know what the, one of the most common causes of death from pregnant women is homicide. Uh, yes, I was actually shocked when I read that statistic. I was like, yeah, mind fact, blown. Uh-huh. Yep. We know that Teresa was about two and a half months pregnant when she was killed. They found a letter she had written but hadn't yet mailed to her sister, explaining that she wouldn't be coming home for a, a visit at Christmas as they had planned because she was due in January. And she sounded pretty, pretty upset about it, but sort of resigned. We know she had a really hard time with postpartum depression after her third child was born, which may have made her less likely to want to go through another pregnancy, especially as we can only imagine that Elmer was likely not a supportive husband, even for that time, right? They also found articles about abortion that had been cut out of magazines and newspapers and things. And so the current best theory is that he wanted her to have an abortion But because she was a Catholic, she refused, even though it seems that she didn't want another baby either, but she didn't feel that was an option for her. Yeah. Other motive was that, did she find out how much, just how much he was stealing from work, you know, and threaten to tell on him or demand he give it up or something like that? And those are sort of the only two motives that they ever really came up with. These are both infuriating motives. I mean, not that any motive would be reasonable, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I can totally see this asshole killing his family over any of those things. And it's such a horrific way. I know. It's awful, isn't it? It's just... Yeah. And it all comes down to greed. And it seems Elmer really put some thought into this. He really, really tried to make it look like his wife had killed their kids and herself. And he set himself up to try to look like the grieving husband and father. You know what I mean? Like he attacked the kids way more than he did Therese. So there would be less damage on her making it look like she was the one that had killed the kids. The hose from the exhaust to the driver's window was another touch. The thing is, when he pushed that car over the edge, I'm sure he thought it had gone over and out to sea because you can't see the ledge that the car landed on from where you push the car off. You'd have to be kind of on the other side of that little cove, you know? So he thought it had gone into the ocean and would never be seen again. And they had updated their wills and life insurance just two weeks before the murders. So there was that financial motive too. 
you know, doing it two weeks before is a little bit coincidental. So when the police went to the house for the first time, they now think that he was inside, maybe taking a break from cleaning up all the blood. And he would have been absolutely stunned that the police were at his door because he probably thought he'd gotten away with the perfect crime and planned everything perfectly. And now all he had to do was get things cleaned up and play the grieving husband and father. But when the cops showed up, it seems like he abandoned his meal, packed his shit up, and got the fuck out. So the police tried to look into his background in both Canada and Ireland, but like me, they came up empty. (laughs) So I felt better about not being able to find anything about him when I found that out. He was 41 when he killed his family and the retired cop. He thinks it wouldn't have been that hard for him at all to disappear if he just went to some remote part of the outback you know, just got a job that paid cash under the table. He could have lived kind of under the radar life for a very long time. There were sightings reported now and then, but nothing that ever led to concrete information on his whereabouts. In a 2017 article for the Daily Mail Australia, Hannah Moore recounts one of these encounters, quote, Nugget Wright said he had met a man with a wife who was, quote, long gone, quote, who came to have moved from Melbourne in 1970. When asked why he left the Victorian capital, the man, believed to be Crawford, told the former driver, quote, I had to leave in a hurry. I did something terrible, end quote. Nugget asked if his new acquaintance was the man Victoria Police had recently been in the area to look for and told Seven News the man's reaction was concerning. Quote, his head dropped, his shoulders shrunk, and he had that attitude, quote, oh shit, I've told this bloke too much, end quote, Nugget said. So... Yeah, there were other reported sightings, and while many of them were very likely, like it would be like an acquaintance ran into somebody that was positive it was him, positive, but he said, no, he was a tourist from New Zealand, so just nothing ever led anywhere. The biggest break then came in July 2010 when Victorian police announced that they were working with the FBI trying to identify using facial recognition technology a man that had died from a heart attack in 2005 in San Angelo, Texas. And they thought it might be Elmer Crawford. It's kind of eerily similar to John List. You don't think so? No, I do. I definitely do. Absolutely. I didn't get into all the detail of all the the times that people thought it might have been him because it didn't lead anywhere. But yeah, it's so frustrating that he got, he got, but wait, it's even more frustrating than John List because he's still at large. Yeah. So basically what happened was the, the authorities in Texas had a body in their custody that had multiple false IDs, like fake passports or driver's licenses or whatever. And this man's fingerprints had been obliterated uh, sometime before his death, like intentionally had his fingerprints removed. So they had no idea who this guy was, but this is all shady as fuck. So they are on the lookout for anyone fitting this guy's description who would have, you know, had a reason to hide his identity to that degree. Mm -hmm. And Elmer fit the bill. But unfortunately, on August 27th, 2010, they announced that the DNA was not. A match. <sighs> so Elmer Crawford could still be still be out there. So he was born. I was able to find his baptismal certificate. And he was born in May of 1929. So if he's still alive today, he's 90 and going to be 91 pretty soon. It's possible. It's possible, yeah. It's possible, but not terribly likely. Therese McManus Crawford was only 35 and pregnant when she was murdered, along with her three children, by their father, her husband. So, yeah, it was just so sad. It's awful. It's awful. I hate the fact that he got away with it and, you know, he just lived his life somewhere. Yeah. 
And I always hate that I said it, say, the same thing with the John List episode. Just get the fuck out. If he was so good at disappearing, why did he have to kill his family? You know, who could have just up and left, never to be seen again without murdering his wife and children. I get he was after money. He didn't want to leave without money, but he could have done something. You don't have to murder your family because your wife is pregnant. It's absolutely fucking worst. Like, seriously. It's... Makes me yeah. so mad. It's... It's incredibly upsetting, and especially because we know he had assets. Like he could have, he could have quietly yeah. sold off his at if he wanted out, rather than quietly figuring out, you know, how to build electrocution devices, which yeah. brought me right back to Richard Ramirez. But um, this was even more complicated than that, you know. But why, why didn't he just sort of consolidate, hide that money, and take off? Yeah. The good news is he didn't get anything. So, I don't know. I like to think that he died horribly of a snake bite, like in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but like I said, yeah, at least he got nothing, right? Probably at the end of the day, one way or another, he did all of this because he was a greedy bastard, right? I mean, that was at the core of everything. And so, there is that little bit of satisfaction that at least he didn't get any of the money that he planned on collecting. So, all the property went into the estate including the money that was in the bank account that was never touched, the properties that he owned in Queensland, the house on Cardinal Road in Glenroy, all these different assets. And the good news is Teresa's half of the estate went to her family in Queensland. And no one ever came forward to claim Elmer's half. They did find a relative who helped with the DNA testing of the body in Texas. And I'm not going to mention exactly who this person is because they never met him or knew him or probably even knew of him. Anyone with information is asked to please contact Crime Stoppers in Australia at 1-800-333-000. And that is the tragic story of family annihilator Elmer Crawford. Wow. Thank you, Annie. I'm blown away by how sadistic and horrible he did this. Yeah, it's awful. I hate these kind of stories. I I know. I know. And the Sensing Evil episode I'm going to link to, it's interesting because there is... I know it's not really your jam, but there was some, the psychics were kind of interesting. And then another story that they had was somebody who grew up in that house, never knowing what had happened, like later on, somebody who grew up and really believes that his imaginary friend was actually the little boy, the ghost of the little boy. It was, it was sweet and sad, but I don't know how much I, you know, grain of salt. It's uh, just a speck of arsenic with everything. Do we have anything good this week? Is this week just, um... <laughs> this week is so fucked up. <sighs> oh, Stop Jesus. buying um, toilet paper. My something good this week. Well, I think by now we all know about what's going on in the world right now. Yeah. With this freaking virus. Honestly, I really don't want to say too much about it as many of our listeners just want to get away from all of it when they're listening yeah. to us for half an hour. Uh, but my something good this week, um, I think, is that despite the virus often brought out the worst in some people in the last couple of days, it also brought out some good in people. Like here we, I think we are like two weeks ahead of you with, with all the government at least. The things the government does to protect us or to stop these kind of things. Yeah, we're way behind. <laughs> so here we are having younger and fitter people offering to go shopping for elderly or immune-compromised neighbors. I think that's lovely. I think that's how it should be. It is. Please, you guys out there, all I can say is stay safe, stay reasonable, practice social distancing. I really, I cannot urge this enough. Yeah. Take this seriously. Don't panic. 
it's all just about, you know, taking the burden of the health care system. Yeah, absolutely. Wash your hands. Flatten the curve, as they say. Yeah, flatten the curve. And thanks for all the corona memes in our Facebook group. You you guys <laughs> uh, you guys really cracked me up with that. It was fun. We have to laugh a little bit about it. Oh, you have to. Well, that's how we get through everything, isn't it? So, um, yeah, we've we've postponed Paul's birthday plans. Hopefully, this will all be cleared up before the fall when we yeah. want to head your way. We've got lots of things closing here. I'm just, I think, I'm afraid the horse has already left the stable, so to speak. I think we're so far behind what Europe's done. I think Europe is in a much better uh, position to fight this anyway. I'm just hoping very much that the loss of life is minimal. I'm high risk, but I'm more worried about the parents, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I had to pick something good, it's just I've finally been given the all clear to get back into the hot tub. <laughs> so that's been a really a relief. And I'm kind of a shut in. So I'm okay with staying home. Yeah, I'm fine with the it. The funny too. thing is, they still have like, I have a routine CAT scan tomorrow at the hospital. And no one's telling me not like the hospital hasn't called and said, you know, don't come in or anything so yeah. i'm i guess that's it we'll see but yeah it's like you said just wash your hands with soap and water for a long enough time don't forget your thumbs people always neglect the thumbs fingertips fingertips yep i like to scrape my nails along my palms to get the soap under my nails if nothing else please can we can we come out globally as a people who are better hand washers than we used to be because yeah. if people just washed their hands properly every time i'm at in a public ladies room and i see a woman come out of a stall and splash her hands under the mm -hmm. faucet and sometimes they'll look at me and they'll say, are you a doctor? Because they'll see me washing my hands properly. And I'll say, no, I'm washing my hands with, the, with what you did. You might as well go back into the stall and like flush the toilet. And as the water is swirling, just dip your <laughs> fucking hands in there like a goddamn raccoon lady. You've done nothing. Like, I'm not sure what you think sprinkling your fingers underwater is going to accomplish. But it's like, I don't think that you you know, shat upon your hand in the stall, but you touched the door. And and I guarantee you, someone else has shat upon their hand in that stall. So just wash your hands. Assume the worst and wash. Just wash your damn hands. All right, that's it. If you want some good corona memes to cheer you up, if you want some nice conversation, if you, I don't know, just get away from it all, come join our Facebook group. It's lovely. It really is lovely. It really is. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter. If you want to go buy a Fresh Hell mug and have some tea. The mugs are good. I can definitely recommend the mugs. Also, the sweatshirts are really comfortable. My sister's ordering her second sweatshirt because she says she's living in the one. I bought one from my husband that I've been living in because I put on so much weight. So I've been stealing all of his clothes and uh, it really is comfy. The best thing you could really do is leave us a quick review on uh, iTunes, especially if you have that. That would be very much appreciated. But until next week, please do stay well. And if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye. Bye.